0: We are locked in, ladies and gentlemen, another, man, this is going to be a very exciting, a very uh, information-packed episode. Wow, like I just told him, if I had a dollar for every hour I've watched of his videos and been into his research, I'd be a very rich man. And as he said, if he had a dollar, he'd be a very rich man as well. This guy, wow. Professor Dr. Jo- uh, Joseph Farrell. He is a professor of economics at Cal State Berkeley and has a PhD. Uh, at-
1: no, no, no. You've got the wrong Joseph Farrell there. I have. Holy no crap. I have no connection to California or being a professor of economics. That's a different guy. <laughs>
0: okay, well let me let me rewind that then horrible show prep. You are the PhD philosophy guy from Oxford correctly?
1: That's right, but okay. I am not a professor of economics.
0: <laughs> okay, rewind, folks. I apologize. You the pooch on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I apologize. He is a Ph.D. Uh, from Oxford with a you know Ph.D. in philosophy. He is an author of a great many books, The Cosmic War, Babylon Bankers, Nazi International, The Giza Death Star. I mean, this guy, believe me, goes so very deep as a history guy. I mean, just very, very privileged and just stoked to have him on the show. Dr. Farrell, how are you today, sir?
1: Pretty good. Thanks for having me on, Jeffrey.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I am of course joined joined by my co host partner in Crime UFC Hall of Famer Pat Miller. How are you doing today, Pat? I'm doing great.
2: I'm ready to get my mind blown. I mean I've I've delved into a lot of different subjects and to be honest with you, I have not spent a lot of time, not not as much as you have, I've spent time on it, but I'm not near as deep into it. I'm not near as well read, so I'm
0: I'm ready to get my mind blown. And and it will do that very thing, sir. So, Dr. Farrell, let me, um, let me, I guess, let's just start with. We're going to begin with pre kind of World War II
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, some of the machinations, some of the power that was going on prior to World War II. I, I guess we'll just start with this. The, the Germany lost the war, but not the Nazis. Talk about the climate, if you don't mind, leading up to World War II and the players involved, if you will.
1: Well, I'm assuming that what you're trying to get at there is the the connections of of the Nazis, particularly various leadership uh, people within the Nazi Party, to the West. Yes, your Bushes, uh, to,
0: your Tysons, et cetera.
1: Right. Um, there's actually there's actually three things that you need to look at. You need to look at number one, the connection between a German American banker. His, his name was Hor, uh, Helmar Horace Greeley Schacht. Um, so, you know, he's got German and American names. Uh, his parents had immigrated from Germany to this country, and then he himself immigrated back to Germany from the United States. He became the central banker in Germany in the interwar period. He was president of the Reichsbank during the hyperinflation period in Germany. He was the man that actually ended it. Uh, he put an end to all the currency speculation and everything that was driving the hyperinflation. He was, uh, he was by his own uh, admission, <laughs> he, was, he was the financial wizard. Uh, he was the chairman of the Reichsbank, the German Central Bank, all the way up to the very beginning of the Nazi regime under Adolf Hitler. So he's one fellow that you need to look at because he had very, very close, uh, amicable, cordial friendships with the chairman of the bank of england a fellow by the name of montague norman and then with the governor of the new york federal reserve f- another friend of his by the name of benjamin strong so the first guy you need to look at is Kalmar schacht because he in turn is the man that had the idea and actually worked out the principal architecture of the Bank of International Settlements in in Basel, Switzerland, which became kind of the central bank to the central bankers. Mm -hmm. Um, The the BIS was used uh, by the Nazis during World War II not only to conduct some behind-the-scenes diplomacy. During World War II, the BIS was, was headed by an American president by the name of William McKittrick. And McKittrick... Because of his association with the BIS, the BIS has sovereign status. So he could travel all throughout Axis-occupied Europe under a diplomatic immunity. In other words, he was a kind of a go-between for the second group of people we need to look at in this regard. And that's what I call the Sullivan and Cromwell crowd. Mm, Yes. Uh, this group of uh, American financiers and lawyers, including the Dulles brothers, of course, Allen and, and John Foster Dulles, come out of that uh, law firm. Another fellow by the name of John McCloy. <laughs> John, John Foster Dulles, who wanted
0: up being Secretary of State. Alan Dulles, who wanted up being head right. of CIA. Very key right. players later on down the line of the right. Kennedy assassination.
1: Right. And then John J. McCloy, of Former course. Former head
0: of Chase Manhattan. part uh, of the. Well, let,
1: me, let me get there. Go for please. it. <laughs> let me get there, please. Yes. a a banker with Chase Manhattan, but he was also, prior to the war, he was the American consul for I.G. Farben in this country. And he shared a box with Adolf Hitler during the 1936 Berlin Olympics. In other words, this is how important this man was. After the war, he became the American high commissioner for Germany. And in that capacity, pardoned over 70,000 Nazis, many of whom end up in the first post-war West German Chancellor's Cabinet, Konrad Adenauer. Then of course McCloy goes on to become a sitting member of the Warren Commission during the Kennedy assassination.
0: Mm, along so, with Alan Dulles, who was violent. Well,
1: along with Alan Dulles, yes. Let's well, let's make sure that we mention that. So you've got you've got this association of the Sullivan and Cromwell people with the Bank of International Settlements that's kind of represented by the American president of the Bank of International Settlements during World War II. By the name of William McKittrick, it's out of that group that you see the American attempts to, to negotiate a peace with, with people inside of Nazi Germany all throughout the war, leading up to, in fact, in my opinion, the the assassination attempt on, on Adolf Hitler in July of 1944, July 20th, 1944,
2: the whole Tom Cruise, Valkyrie yes, right, thing. Right.
1: That we're familiar with. Well, there was there's a story behind that that the movie doesn't get into. That you know there was uh, contact with this German resistance ever since the outbreak of the war. In fact, it's that same group of people that was behind Rudolf Hess flying to to England. So this group of people has this contact with an American peacenik party that wants to get the the West out of the war so that Nazi can, Germany can fight the Soviet Union to the standstill. You know, Germany had it in 1944 about 60 to 80 divisions, if I recall correctly, on the Western Front. You know, that would have been an overwhelming force to move to the Eastern Front. If, so I, may got, if
0: I may ask real quick, is this, this is the same crew that prior to all of this attempted to... Uh, In your speculation, uh, attempted or did assassinate FDR and the whole Smedley-Butler coup. Is this the same kind of crew?
1: Yes, there are ties between the, the people, the Wall Street financiers that are behind the coup attempt against FDR early in his administration, his first administration. So, yes, it's the same crowd. Right. Uh, It's you've got many of the same players involved, and it's all this nexus. At that time with FDR, it's it's people around the DuPonts and so on. But, you know, they certainly have their connections to that whole uh, Wall Street, uh, New York, Eastern progressive establishment. So this is the second group that we need to look at. And then you mentioned, of course, the Bushes. The Bushes, uh, Prescott Bush at that time had the Union Bank and Trust, which was kind of a front bank for the Fritz Thiesen interests in this country. Fritz Thiesen was the German uh, CEO of Vereinigte Stahlwerke, United Steel, inside of Germany. He was basically the head of an an enormous steel cartel in Germany and a principal financier in Adolf Hitler's uh, early 1930s campaigns. So in other words, you've got all of these, you've got all of these financial connections between Germany and and the West, uh, with certain parties in Great Britain and certain parties in the USA.
0: Very very crucial nexus there, yeah. Because I mean, as always, yeah, when you talk, we talk about we war, it's always about economics uh, uh, or natural resources.
1: Right.
0: Um, so okay, yeah, and then this is obviously another conversation that I wish I would like to have. The Nazis were involved in. Um, I, to best of my can understand, they 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 had access to um, I don't even what would you like to call it secret technology, a technology that hadn't been kind of released yet. They were up to stuff during World War II. Is that correct? With specifically the Bell, as you call it.
1: Well, it's for me to answer that. What do you mean by access to? What, what is your thinking there?
0: Well, I I'm not. I think Adolf Hitler, if I understand correctly, he had an understanding of—I um, don't know—it could be wrong—ancient histories. Um, okay, I see a what history you're which
1: might have been hidden, and they—they they might have had. Well, the reason—the reason I asked that question that way back to you is, I often get people who attempt to account for this massive burst of an explosion of technology that occurred during the 12 years of... I'm getting feedback here, guys.
0: Pat, you might have echo on your end.
1: Okay, anyway, um, yeah, I'm still getting feedback. Pat, is that you? Is that better? Yeah, that's better now. Thank you. Okay. Um, I, have
2: no, I have no idea why the volume jumped up on my microphone, so I apologize. It was, it was,
1: <laughs> it was kind of confusing. Anyway, I, I have people ask me all the time when they attempt to account for this explosion of technology during the the twelve years of of the Third Reich's existence by leaping to crashed and retrieved UFOs and so on and so exactly, forth. Exactly. Yeah. And I want to make it very clear. Um, to me, this is a non-starter as a philosophical and epistemological argument. Uh, the temp- the temptation and the tendency within that community is to explain every human advance as somehow having been seeded <laughs> by UFOs and contacts with aliens. And folks, you know, I like to joke, but it raises a serious point: that if you know, if every human advance is to be explained by crashed and retrieved UFOs, then pretty soon we're gonna have to start crashing our stuff on ET's home planet so that (laughs) they can catch back up with us. You know this is this is a non-starter of an argument. In my books, what I attempt to do is not to rely on whistleblower testimony or insider anonymous sources or any of this hogwash. I attempt to do actual speculative reconstruction of the chain of concepts within science and then the concepts within engineering to account for this explosion of technology. So with that epistemological qualifier in mind, then what I believe the Nazis did, what why they were able to achieve such a stunning expansion of technology in such a short time, is because, number one, through companies like IG Farben, they had a vast network of interlocked licensing and patent usage agreements. So in other words, prior to the war, a lot of technology was transferred to Nazi Germany and incidentally from Nazi Germany by way of these gigantic corporations that were based in Germany that were, that were concluding these patent swap agreements. All right, That's the first thing. The second thing is during the run-up to the war, the, the Nazi regime and particularly the SS began to create a, an infrastructure rather similar, in my opinion, to what you see in this country after the war with the establishment of, of ARPA. And then, of course, when it changed its name to DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, mm-hmm. You know, if you look at this agency, Jeffrey, you have basically a, a think tank who sit around dreaming up all sorts of fancy out you know out of the box projects and then try to figure out the technology tree of how we get from here to there. Well, this is exactly what the Third Reich did. They set up a number of these these outfits the most prominent being an outfit that was under the control of an SS four-star general by the name of Dr. Hans Kammler. He was a doctor of, of engineering. And his his group, what was called the Kammler Stop, was in effect a kind of very, very secret DARPA. And they the mandate for this group was to literally think their way to second, third, and fourth generation weapons and the basic steps in the technology tree that would be needed to get there. And this is why I think you have this explosion of technology in the Third Reich, because they're thinking completely outside of the box. They are even under Kamler, they're even freeing themselves from the... Uh, from the constraints of, of adherence to Nazi party ideology. So in other words, it's, it's literally a free-for-all inside this little engineering think tank. It's not so little, actually. But that's my explanation for why you have this explosion and access to these sophisticated technologies. If you stop and think about it, by the end of World War II, the Germans either had operational or were ready to bring operational Things like television-guided missiles, acoustic-homing torpedoes, infrared heat-seeking missiles, uh, chemical-free, you know, chemical-free uh, tunable lasers—the whole panoply of things that we take for granted now—were in prototype form by the end of World War II. So, in other words, they're basically running prototypical versions of things that we now take for granted in warfare, smart bombs and so on and so forth. This was this was all achieved, in effect, by the end of World War II. You even
0: speculate toward, I think it was Barbarossa, and please correct me if I'm wrong, when the Nazis pushed into the Soviet Union, there was a certain battle or a certain couple weeks where the, the level of casualties was just off the scale. I think we even referred to it as like they, they liquidated them what do you mm-hmm. what do you account for th- those mass casualties and were they using experimental weaponry in World War two
1: well I've actually you're kind of jumbling a couple of things I've okay. said in previous interviews so let me kind of clarify if you look at the casualties inflicted by the Wehrmacht on Soviet Russia in in all of World War two from from June 22nd 1945 up to the the uh, surrender on, on May 8th. Uh, if you look at all of this, the Wehrmacht inflicted about half the entire casualties of all of World War II on Soviet Russia. Now, any, any military an- analysis or any conventional military expert looking at this will tell you that that is a kill ratio, if I could be rather grisly about it, way out of proportion to any sort of conventional operations, all right? In other words, what they're saying is it's tactically impossible. As good as the Wehrmacht was and as tactically competent as the Wehrmacht was all throughout World War II, uh, that kind of kill ratio is just its its over the top, all right? Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing that we have to account for. There is something else going on on the Eastern Front that really does not make sense. And this is compounded by the fact, and it's a little known fact, it it really didn't register with Western historians of World War II, but in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the russians actually released their actual casualty figures which were in excess even of the 25 million official figure that we have been told
2: wow.
1: so in other words this was a this was an unparalleled uh bloodbath and it was an unparalleled large military campaign we've never seen anything like this pr- prior or since then in human military history this this was just unprecedented now the other aspect of of what you're talking about i'm getting feedback again guys real bad the the other uh the other part of this that i think you were referring to in your question was the first part of the campaign from approximately june 22nd up to about the first or second week of August in, in Operation Barbarossa, if you look at the casualties that were inflicted on the Red Army in terms of prisoners taken, equipment captured or destroyed, uh, formations rendered inoperable, uh, you had by the end of August the Wehrmacht had liquidated about sixty percent of the of the initial. Uh, operational strength of the Red Army and Air Force. Now, again, folks, that's just enormous. Um, a lot of that was due to, to the fact that the Red Army itself was deployed in in positions that were not defensive in nature. Uh, the other part of it is simply due to the to the speed and, and tactical brilliance of, of the German commanders during that campaign. But ultimately, we have to f- confront the fact that. There was something else going on in the war, and this was hinted at uh, by Otto Skorzeny, Hitler's favorite uh, SS commando. He was on the Eastern Front in '41 during the, during the campaign, and he was part of the advance into, uh, into central Russia and ultimately a part of the operational offensive against Moscow. During that campaign, it was called Operation Typhoon. During that campaign, the Germans were using something in their rocket artillery that appears to closely resemble a modern fuel air bomb. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't know what a fuel air bomb is, it's the most powerful conventional explosive. You can make these things as big as tactical nukes. And apparently the Germans were using this, you know, in their multi- multiple barrel rocket artillery batteries at some point during the Battle of Moscow. So, you know, think, think tactical nukes and carpet bombing in the same phrase here, hmm. uh, using this against the Russians. And it was so bad that, that the Russians sent word to the Nazis that, you know, if you keep this up, we're going to have to resort to poison gas. And, of course, Hitler didn't want that. <laughs> so, you know... So they were, my point in raising that story is that they were using weaponry on the Eastern Front that today would qualify as weaponry of mass destruction. And this ultimately, in my opinion, Jeffrey, accounts for this enormous slaughter that you see in in the scale of military operations on the Eastern Front. very interesting. I wanted to ask you, Doctor, anything about
2: if you could educate the, the folks at home a little bit more about the, the education system that they brought over, the Illuminati, uh, the folks from the Bavarian Illuminati groups, things like that that I've I've read a little bit about. Um, and was it Wundt, Vil, was it Wilhelm Wundt that started or was, that came to the United States uh, I see and what did, you're did some good. teaching?
1: Uh, no, Wilhelm Wundt never came to this country. Um, okay. What, what happened, I, I assume that you're talking about my book, uh, Rotten to the Common Core.
2: Okay. Yeah,
1: um, yeah I, I cover all of that in that book. Um, yeah, because
2: explain explain how this all leads up to the Common Core nightmare that I'm dealing with with my children right now.
1: <laughs> well, read the book. Uh, it, it's It goes into this in a lot more detail. And, and, folks, I have to, again, I'm not trying to make a plea, read my books. I, I'm making a plea that we... Our, our primary source of detailed information is still books, not radio shows, not television shows, not documentaries, right. but books. Uh, but to summarize in a very quick fashion of what's in the book, Wilhelm Wundt was a German psychologist that, d- that decided in order to put psychology on a scientific footing, it had to be mathematizable, and in order for that to happen, we had to resort to a purely materialistic understanding of mankind. In other words, uh, man is a machine, he's a stimulus response mechanism, and therefore you see a direct line from Wilhelm Wundt to, guess who, Pavlov and his dogs, Mm. because Pavlov studied with Wundt, as did a whole host of American Uh, PhD students, you know, the, the thing back then was, you know, if you wanted to study anything scientific, well, you went to Germany. So you had a whole generation of American students that went over to Germany and studied with Wilhelm Wundt and Absorbed this whole idea of of mankind, and therefore, and this is also one of Wundt's theories about education, if mankind is a stimulus response mechanism, then education is really about designing suitable stimulus response experiences in the classroom. And with that, of course, I, I, I don't think it takes much imagination to see how you have turned from the handing down of a particular tradition in particular academic disciplines like mathematics or physics or what have you, to an emphasis on having a certain kind of experience in the classroom. Hmm. Now, just to just to give you a, a brief overview of how many people were affected within the American uh, academy, with these theories obviously John Dewey was one of one of these people that were influenced by these ideas but you can also think of Edward Thorndike, George Counts and of course he had an, Counts had an enormous influence on so-called progressivist education in this country and the other thing that this philosophy did and here's the clincher is by turning education from the handing down of a scholarly tradition of various disciplines, be it mathematics, rhetoric, literature, music, geometry, what have you, if you if you have a turn from that tradition to an idea of the classroom as a learning experience for stimulus response mechanisms, then what does the teacher become? The teacher becomes the psychological equivalent of a paralegal or of a nurse practitioner. In other words, someone who has to be licensed or, in American parlance, certified to apply these methodological principles in the classroom without having to be under the supervision of a Ph.D. in psychology or an M.D. in psychiatry. So in other words, if you want a connection of why we see the drugging of American kids and the requirement that teachers have to go to some school and study something called education in order to get something called a certificate, which is simply a license to practice, that's why. It has led to the situation where someone like me, who has a Ph.D., from the oldest university in the English speaking world cannot go to a public school and teach a class because I don't have that certificate. I'm not licensed to practice the psychology. Right. Wow. So in other words, yeah, wow. So in other words, this is why you see the psychological turn in American education. This is why you see uh, if I may be blunt, the butt hurt snowflakes crying about their uh, crying about their triggering and be of, being offended at this or that thing on American college campuses
0: We've seen it because all
1: over. they have been infected with this psychological uh, concentration on the self, uh, on having experiences and emotions and being authenticated and validated. Rather than learning particular subjects, the system will not, and pardon me if I'm preaching here, the system will not be fixed by throwing any amount of money at it. It will only be fixed by ending the monopoly of this progressivist philosophy that has has taken over and captured the American Academy via the mechanism of certification,
2: right, wow. and then and, and then you take it to the next level. After these people have been trained in school, then you move on to the the socialist government in control of people. Basically, what the welfare state in America? Well, uh, look, Hitler's look, National once, Socialism.
1: Look, look, once you once you have the idea that mankind is a stimulus response mechanism in other words the cosmology here is purely materialist it's purely mechanistic it is to to uh broaden the term it's marxist because it's it's a purely materialistic thing that you're dealing with when you're dealing with mankind all right so yes in that sense yes but the other thing you've got to remember is once you've said that and once you have made education your laboratory in designing suitable stimulus response learning experiences, then what are you actually engaged in? You're actually engaged in social engineering, Exactly. not education. Right. And this is what we point out in, in our book, Rotten to the Common Core. I had a co-author in the book that is actually in uh, American education at, at this time. And, you know, he's not alone. There there are many teachers that know what the problem in the system is. It's just that no one can come right out and say abolish the whole idea of teacher certification. Let old curmudgeons like me, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that have a Ph.D. and a traditional understanding of an approach to education get into the public education classrooms and teach. Because if the system goes on as it is now, eventually it's going to break down. People are going to start educating apart from the system, and eventually the system will collapse because everyone will see it for the fraud yes. that it is. Yes.
2: Hence wow. the homeschooling, thats the, the yeah. massive wave of homeschooling that's going on.
1: Well, that's just the first stage of, of uh, revolt. I think that ultimately down the line, you're going to see people – and teachers just going back to the old system of private tutoring. In other words, there, there will be a system that emerges from this and it will, uh, you know, because I, am quite frankly, very skeptical of a lot of homeschooling. Uh, a lot of it tends to be very fundamentalist, uh, in nature. And that's has its own dangers as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, I think homeschooling does, in that respect, represent the first stage of a revolt. But the next stage coming is actually a black market in teachers and tutors that will uh, teach according to an old kind of uh, traditional approach to to academic learning. And, you know, I almost
2: feel like I almost feel like Trump um, put in our new Department of Education secretary in to almost wind that whole thing up. Um, Well,
1: maybe so, maybe not. Um, You know, there's a whole school of philosophy that says everything questionable that Trump does is really him just playing 4D chess. Uh, I'm not in that school. Um, You know, I was a reluctant supporter of him. Uh, Certainly anything is better than Darth Hillary. But uh, (laughs) And and I'm a
2: Rand Paul guy through and through. Well,
1: yeah, I'd be more inclined to support Rand Paul myself. (laughs) Right. But... um, yeah, I there you know, she has her own um she has her own skeletons in the closet. Certainly not just as a few. As, <laughs> just a few, yes. But um yeah, the the whole the whole uh Vuntian influence on American education that began in the nineteenth century, <clears throat> it's still there. You're dealing with Generation 4 now, or 5, that's been raised in that kooky philosophy, and we see the results. We are turning into a banana republic with nukes. Absolutely. Because because we have stupid people in Smart the leadership phones. class with smartphones and their hands on you know the red button. <laughs> so, uh, oh. not a good picture, folks. <laughs> well, you guys so – yeah, go ahead, Matt. Sorry, go ahead, Jeff. No, go ahead. If I was
2: just wondering – how you tie um, Skull and Bones, that the group of Skull and Bones, into all of this with the Illuminati well, and, this, and some of those folks? I,
1: I don't. This is why it's important to read my books. It's not that I'm not aware of Skull and Bones and all of this, but it's, I, you know, the amount of material I've covered in 29 books is enormous, mm-hmm. and I, I, you know, I simply right. can't cover everything. Yeah. Uh, but Skull and Bones, you know, if you look at it. Carefully, Uh, Skull and Bones is yet another one of these weird little German connections, because if you look at its own self-admitted history, it appears to have some sort of connection to a secret society, we don't really know what or where, dating back to about the late 1830s, early 1840s, somewhere inside of, of what we now call Germany. Well if that's the case then this would place the the historical connection of the society to a time period in European history that is fraught with with revolution uh, all throughout Europe number 1 you know the 1848 revolution is just around the corner and if you look at the the history you mentioned the illuminati earlier if you look at the history of the bavarian illuminati after they were shut down in i think 17 uh, 17- What was it, 83, 84, somewhere around there. may have been later than that, actually. Uh, But when they were finally shut down by the Bavarian government, well, what did Adam Weishaupt and his fellow Illuminati do? Well, they dispersed themselves throughout Germany, you know, all these little German states and principalities and duchies and so on. They dispersed themselves. Throughout Germany, so you know that was the very worst thing you could have done is to disperse a group of of radical nutcases like that. You know, Uh, the only thing the only thing about Adam Weishaupt is you're dealing with Robespierre without a guillotine. You know, (laughs) so (laughs) so, um, you know this is this was the very worst thing that you could do. And I've always suspected that because of that dispersion and that unusual historical circumstance with the founding of Skull and Bones that there may have been some sort of connection between Weishaupt and, and that organization in this country, um, because you certainly see people coming out of Skull and Bones that appear to be scions of conservatism and so on and so forth, but they support the nuttiest ideas. <laughs> you can't and they, down, the yeah.
2: Bavarian Illuminati, I mean, they believed in destruction of religion and, and getting rid of the family and all those sort of things, didn't they?
1: Well, that's putting it in my far too simply for for my taste what they're really what they're really attempting to do is get back to what they understood as the primordial social, cultural civilizational condition of mankind. In other words, they're trying to step back, so to speak uh, to some, golden age in the mists of prehistory where everything was hunky-dory where there were no economic or class or racial or any other types of distinctions whatsoever that's their ultimate goal in other words they're they're chasing after an early version of communism but if you look at their actual writings they come to perceive the distinctions of nobility and burger and peasant and so on and so forth as contributing to the unhappiness of mankind as they understood it when compared to that supposed state of classlessness in the midst of prehistory. So in other words, they have constructed their own kind of secular religion. And ultimately, if you look at that, that religion. And this is why they're so against other kinds of religion, particularly Catholicism. (laughs) But, but, you know, pretty much any kind of religion, Protestantism too. Um, They they do have in their in their doctrinal tenets, they do have this very weird kind of proto-Marxist feel to them. But it's all based on this idea that in in some stage of prehistory mankind didn't have all of these things that caused such division in society. That's their analysis. And they and they felt that
2: this was heroic as long as they were going to be the ones running it.
1: Exactly. Of right. course. You know, they're yeah. they're the first they're the first attempt at a nomenclatura. All right. right. That's that's what they are.
0: Yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. Wow, blowing my mind, blowing my mind. Well, I'm going to rewind us here back to uh, not that that was just absolutely awesome. The end of World War II is kind of where we left off before we jumped ahead there. So much was going on at the end of World War II, and this is what I found so fascinating in, in your work. Obviously, you know, you have in the late 40s, you have obviously the end of the war, the beginning of the CIA, OSS, the beginning of the NSA, and you have, like I said, Germany lost the war, but the Nazis did not. Tell me about what happened to, to the Nazis via all of their subsidiary companies IG Farben, all, right. all of them, all the gold, all the art, and how all that right. money was leveraged over the decades, into their subsidiary companies through the Bilderberg and Prince Bernhardt?
1: I I got got the question. This is is a very complex topic, and and, um, here's the problem. Let's let's deal with the Nazis not losing. Uh, That's not quite accurate enough. It's not so much that they didn't lose, because they obviously did lose. The question really is in my books I point out that there is no instrument of surrender to the allied powers at the end of World War II that is signed by and for any representative of the Nazi party. Okay? You. If you look at the surrenders of the German military there's two there's actually two different surrenders. One is by Colonel General Yodel, who is the chief of staff for the OKW, the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, at Reims, France on May 7th, 1945. A day later, there's a second surrender ceremony that takes place in Berlin with uh, Field Marshal Keitel signing on behalf of uh, the German army, then... uh, General Stumpf signing on, on behalf of the Luftwaffe, and then uh, Admiral Friedeberg signing on behalf of, of the Kriegsmarine. All right. So, in other words, you have basically all three service branches in the Berlin ceremony signing an instrument of unconventional surrender. But here's the problem. No one is signing as a representative of or for the Third Reich itself as a state. Mm. Okay. And there is no one at either signing ceremony signing as a representative of and for the Nazi Party. Now, to me, Jeffrey, this has always struck me as extraordinarily odd, especially, and I, I do this in the book, The Nazi International Uh Please, folks, read the books. Don't try to understand this simply by listening to radio interviews. That won't work. The devil's in the details. If you compare the surrenders of Nazi Germany to the surrender of Imperial Japan, you'll notice quite a difference. Because General MacArthur made awful darn sure when he drafted that surrender instrument that he was getting the Japanese to surrender everything by everybody in other words there were representatives empowered to sign on behalf of the imperial diet on behalf of the imperial japanese general staff on behalf of the japanese navy on behalf of the empire itself as the representative of the emperor in other words everybody is surrendering that needs to be surrendering okay Mm -hmm. but if you go to the surrenders in europe The only thing that's surrendering, apparently, is the German military. There's no representative of the Reich government, which at that time was Grand Admiral Donitz. He doesn't have a, a representative there signing on behalf of him as president of the Reich. There is no one signing as a representative or agent of the Nazi party which, the, again, the Allies were in a position at that point to demand that the Germans send somebody to represent the party to surrender and brand the party a criminal organization and order it out of existence, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is simply not done. You have to wait for the Allied uh, treaties with West Germany after the war to see anything even coming close to this. So, in other words... If you look at it from a purely legal point of view you you never have a legal internationally recognized surrender of the Nazi party the Nazi party just goes on it you know in my opinion it transfers itself elsewhere which brings us to your second part of the question what's going on with all of that loot okay. mm-hmm. <laughs> because you, you know, everybody knows the Nazis were going around Europe, scouring Europe for enormous amounts of bullion, art treasures, liquid cash, and so on and so forth. And this is where it gets really very, very murky. You know, you could you could spend volumes tracking this story down. You know, I have barely skimmed the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens after Stalingrad is that certain leading Nazis, particularly Martin Bormann, begin actual strategic long-term planning to get as much of this Nazi loot out of Europe under corporate fronts and other mechanisms out of Europe. In And by loot, please understand me, I'm not just talking about bullion or art treasures or stocks and bonds. I'm talking about patents. I'm talking about research personnel. I'm talking about security personnel. In other words, what Bormann is setting up is a post-war international extraterritorial state that is partly corporately connected and partly using its host countries to continue its existence as before. Through companies like now, IG Farben, etc.? Yeah, through companies like IG Farben. But here's the killer. In Argentina alone, let me tell you, let me tell you a story. I always tell this story. In Argentina alone, American estimates were that the Nazis had smuggled out about $800 million. That's in 1945 dollars, folks. Wow. Yeah, wow. That was under the control, put that in quotation marks, of Colonel Juan Perón and his lovely wife, Evita. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> through through the Evita Peron Foundation. This was all Nazi loot oh. that they were laundering. All right. Now, let's look at the Bilderbergs for a moment. Okay? Let's have some fun.
0: <laughs>
1: Why do you think the Bilderbergers were founded? Well it's so that Mr. Global can get together with, with his European counterparts and plot world domination, right? Okay. So let's look <laughs> at who's let's look at who's setting up the Bilderbergers. Well for the British, we have the Rotten Childs. In the United States, we have the Rockefellers, Lawrence and David. But who's on the European side? Well, we all know Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, right? Yes. Well, who's Prince Bernard? Well, Prince Bernard is not Dutch, folks. He's actually German. He's a German nobleman. He's a prince that married into the Dutch royal house. And he was also a manager of kind of a middle echelon manager in, guess what? IG Farben. <laughs> and one of the principal attendees at those early Bilderberger meetings was a fellow. He was there almost every year, a fellow by the name of Dr. Hermann Josef Opps, who was the CEO of our good friend's Deutsche Bank. Mm, okay? Yes. Uh, during the war... Dr. Ops was the CEO of a small handling bank in Berlin that was the bank of accounts for the Reich government, which means that Dr. Ops was the guy who put his signature on the paychecks to Adolf Hitler for being Reich's consular. Okay, wow. <laughs> so in other words, yeah, wow. What the Bilderbergers always looked to me, Patrick and Jeffrey, was this is a perfect mechanism That you want to set up, if you want to move all of that Nazi loot from people who know where it is into the Western system of finance, keep it all off the books as a kind of a secret reserve, a a hidden system of finance, and then move some of it back into Western Europe in the form of American aid under the Marshall Plan. You know, and, oh, wow. And, Incredible. And, and yeah. let the bankers take their little cut along the way, you know. So in other words, yeah, this this looks to me like the Bilderbergers were initially set up to coordinate the movement of all of this capital. Now here's the clincher. If you think I'm whistling Dixie here, there was a CBS reporter by the name of paul manning that wrote a book called martin Bormann nazi in exile paul manning was a close personal friend of the cbs anchorman ed murrow you know the cronkite before cronkite mm-hmm. okay and manning wrote this book because his friend ladislas farrago had written a book called Aftermath, subtitled Martin Bormann and the Fourth Reich, documenting through Argentine uh, Intelligencia Central documents that Martin Bormann was alive and well and thriving in this <laughs> big Nazi mafia, <laughs> for want of a better expression, that was spread all over Latin America and pretty much everywhere else in the world. And, of course, the press savaged Farrago for this. And mm-hmm. so Manning decided, well, he was going to go down there and get to the bottom of the story himself. So he writes this book, Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile. He shows it prior to publication to another of his friends, Alan Dulles, <laughs> the director of the CIA, who reads the manuscript and says, yeah, you're on the right track. <laughs> okay. Wow. Now, here's, here's the fun part. In the book, Manning uncovers, and when I read this, you guys, I, I, my jaw, you have to just envision me sitting here in my library with my jaw on the floor <laughs> saying, you're kidding, you know, to an empty room. Manning uncovered the fact that, that during the early 60s, a check was cashed. Drawn on accounts at manufacturers Hanover and Chase Bank in New York City. It was cleared by Deutsche Bank in Buenos Aires. And it was for a couple of million dollars, okay? And the check was written over Martin Bormann's own signature. <laughs> oh okay. Yo, you know floor <laughs> yeah you know well it, it, that kind of puts paid to the idea that he died you know in yeah. berlin over by the Lahrter bridge or wait a minute was it by that train station over there or was he <laughs> in the tank with the russians or no was he bestu- you know if you again if you read the story of bormann's death You've got five different versions, each from different eyewitnesses, just like the, you know, the the Nazi story of how Hitler died. And please note that, folks, we have to take the word of Nazis, <laughs> for, for, right? You know, I don't know about you, Jeffrey, but if I own a life insurance policy on that one, you know, I ain't paying it out until, no, I, no, have, until I have some better evidence, and you know, not coming from a bunch of Nazis. <laughs> so,
0: what a world. Wow. Well, yeah. for, so, so for the sake of time, I mean, I, again, man, you can make this call if you want to come back. But for the sake of time, I'm going to kind of omit this part of uh, you know, getting into Project Paperclip and getting into the, the Nazi ties to the Kennedy assassination, which is big. What I want you to oh, touch yeah. on before I let you slide out of here, sir. So the, the political influence that this type of money has allowed over the decades, how has that translated to – Today and it, we're talking. We're looking at Germany kind of being the head of the EU. Is this the continuation of the Nazi plan? Is Angela Merkel a part of oh, this? yeah. And is oh, this yeah. essentially what is what you call the Madrid circular?
1: Talk to me about yes. that. Yeah. The uh, I I talk about the European Union in my book called The Third Way. Um, a very important book, folks. If you if you don't believe me, you've got to read this book because the plans for the European Federation. These were actually war aims of Imperial Germany under Kaiser Wilhelm II. Is were, you know, their war aims ultimately were to try to create a European federation. Uh, the Nazis elaborated, I mean, of course, you know, like they would in detail during the height of World War II. Uh, it was an IG Farben, naturally enough. Hmm. Reichsbank study that was drawn up by various experts in Berlin. It was published in a book by the Reichsbank under the imprimatur of the then head of the Reichsbank, the German finance minister, Walter Funk. Uh, again, that guy was uh, tried at Nuremberg. But this plan, was this book, essentially, was a collection of articles by different experts that were detailing how to set up a European federation that nazi or part yeah that nazi germany could dominate what you see in that blueprint is effectively what happened after world war ii with the creation of the european coal and steel community then the common market then what was called the the exchange rate mechanism or the snake as it was sometimes nicknamed, and then finally the European Union, the Eurozone mm-hmm. itself. If you if you look at that Nazi plan, and if you look especially at certain people behind it, you will see exactly more or less what's in existence today. You have a European Federation dominated, and I mean dominated by by Germany. Um one of the key fellows to look at here, if you're interested in pursuing this online, but again, you know, I'm making a pitch for my book here, mm-hmm. is a fellow by the name of Walter Hallstein. H-A-L-L-S-T-E-I-N. He was a lawyer, one of the Nazis' uh, legal gurus prior to the war. It was Hallstein who came up with the idea of doing this via regulatory law. All right. After the war, interestingly enough, Hallstein becomes one of the key principal advisors to Chancellor Konrad Adenauer, then Kurt Georg Kiesinger, Ludwig Erhard, all the way up to Willy Brandt. You see this fellow, Hallstein, lurking in the background, kind of as the eminence grease for post-war German chancellors of both major political parties in Germany. So, in other words, you've got a Nazi lawyer (laughs) who becomes one of their principal advisors and, incidentally, one of the major co-signatories during that period of every single treaty that Germany is signing, creating all of these international European organizations, including, I might add, CERN, (laughs) okay? Mm -hmm. So... You you. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, a whole other conversation there. I know you that's a whole concern, other conversation yes. right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Wow. So so again, this is this is a part of it today is Angela Merkel is, you know, this is this is kind of an extension of kind of what you're talking about. The Madrid Circular, if you don't mind, that was published in, I think, 1950. That's essentially what this is, right? The European yes. Union is the echo of the Madrid Circular.
1: Uh, to, well to the Madrid extent. Circular the Madrid Circular is not so much about the European Union. The Madrid Circular is a geopolitical document outlining long-term strategy for this post-war extraterritorial Nazi state, as I like to call it, oh. um, due to the outbreak of the Korean War. So that's you know that's why I didn't mention it in connection with the European Union. It certainly talks about a European Federation. As something that they want to do, but but what's in that document is much much more uh, juicy and comprehensive mm. <laughs> than just the European Union. Um, but yeah, uh, that's probably the s- uh, subject for another day because I see we're getting close to our uh, close here. But um, yeah, it's a it's an important document uh, in my opinion, even though there's no provenance to it, and you know that's that's what's so weird about all of this this post-war nazi stuff is you encounter these things and they have no provenance but yet they were published at a time years ahead of the actual fulfillment and so that tends to to authenticate them that that's what so, i find so fascinating go ahead pat
2: no i would i just wanted to fast forward to to today's times is is what's going on with trump are these the same People cut from the same cloth that are that are trying to basically oust, impeach Trump, trying to ruin him through the media apparatus and, and uh, all the politics. Well, let's put it this way.
1: Players. Let's put it this way, uh, very briefly. I think that they're not necessarily the same people, but they certainly right. have – Descendants, a, so to speak. Well, they certainly have similar concepts, but much more importantly, I think that they are liaised or networked with each other. Hmm. So, in other words, uh, when you look at that, that neocon, neoliberal, uh, pustule in the American deep state, uh, it certainly has connections with what I've been describing as this Nazi international or fascist mafia or whatever you wish to call it. Um, but that, that, fascist mafia certainly isn't the only deep player on the world stage and and right. you know many people think that that's all i talk about and that's you know that's my grand unified conspiracy theory well it's not um you know there's there's lots of deep players and i think that this just happens to be one of them okay
0: yeah, the rabbit hole goes deep, man. I, with all of your work, I mean, again, if you would come on again sometime, there's so sure. much more from, from Babylon to, to the cosmic war to so much of the stuff you talked about. Literally, I mean, 60 minutes is not even scratching the surface of the surface. Can you put out any social networking? Where can we find some of your work?
1: Uh, You can go to my website, Com. I do have a, a web store there that you can get all my books Um they ultimately come from Amazon but if you order off my off my website I get a few extra pennies uh in royalties and uh, I blog every day there and and uh, have a members subscription area where we do other stuff I talk about stuff I don't even talk about in my books <laughs> but, <Man. laughs> um yeah I have Facebook uh, you can just look me up Joseph Patrick Farrell on Facebook um Unfortunately, I think I've reached the limit of my allotted friends. But um, do you have a do you have a fan page that people can follow? A fan page. I think that's on Facebook called Giza Death Star. Okay, okay, okay. yeah, great. So yeah, I am on Facebook. Um, but uh, well, the way to get all of that. Yeah, the way the way to get a hold of me is through my website. Just use the contact button.
0: Giza dot com. Wow, Dr. Right. Joseph Farrell, I can't, again, man, I cannot thank you so much for your time. Pat, do you have any final closing questions, statements for the doctor? No, I enjoyed listening. Thank you for the education, doctor.
1: All right, thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely, and uh, we will uh, hopefully get Dr. Farrell again on sometime. Thank you so much again, and uh, tune in, still, folks, ladies and gentlemen. Stay tuned. There will be more.